This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I feel more and more, and the more kind of adventures I go on alone as a woman, I feel that we're actually safer and we get more support than the men do, maybe because everyone thinks, ooh, a solitary woman, let's help her. Hmm. And so there's just constantly people wanting to help and, and take care of, yeah, like you say, take care of you. So yeah. I did have a, a group of, I think we all reconnected on Facebook and chat groups and all the rest, so... Um, they heard about my cycle through that. So there, there was that kind of um, united online group support. Yeah. But the majority of the people weren't from my childhood. They were just strangers. And I really discovered throughout my entire journey um, just how good humanity is and yeah. just experienced firsthand the generosity and kindness and fundamental goodness of, of humans and, and strangers and people who didn't know me and didn't need to help. But, yeah. you know people saved my life along the way just random people I, I could have been in really dangerous situations and they and you know they were there to help me just when I needed help so I'm um, yeah so people are good people are good most yeah. of the time yeah. <laughs> I mean we all have a little bit of a, a you know a bad side we can sometimes do I think we all have a fundamental goodness in us and and I think that seeing people and needing help kind of brings that out yeah in mo- people more. Is it mo- most people are good most of the time yeah yeah, yeah. that's it <laughs> yeah. so you talked a bit about how traveling solo as a woman um you felt as though you almost benefited from that yeah are there other th- aspects to being a woman that lends itself to this <laughs> sort of riding this sort of long distance riding in, in your opinion yeah I think because since doing that ride I figured out that I could go for long distances quite well and not tire out and after the world cycle I got into uh, endurance racing um, and like I, like you said I started to do continental kind of long distance races and I think that women are very well suited to ultra sports running as well I think is a similar um, after a certain point men and women become quite equal uh, and I think that could have something to do with with women being able to endure a lot of pain maybe mm-hmm. even better than men and that's as much mental as physical uh, perhaps because we we have i don't know childbirth and all the rest we are our bodies accommodate pain better mm. uh but we also have more fat yeah. so we can actually go longer without needing to eat um we burn slower so we can probably survive better if we come to a situation where there's no food yeah. which i have many times um, and just can keep going anyway and you know not drop dead on the side of the road that's so. always a good thing isn't it when you're racing <laughs> it's really it's useful yeah. yeah it's not a performance enhancer death no yeah exactly yeah. yeah okay so we talked a little bit about diet just there mm. so so a slightly higher percentage of body fat is helpful you have quite an unusual diet in order to help you achieve these yeah well, well I started out very normal diet and okay. ate just absolute crap and when you're on these kind of travels and races you can't actually choose what you eat because you're basically running into a service station and just pulling off what you find on the shelves um, and you start to really crave vegetables and fruits after a certain point um, or just cooked food Um, but then I started to get into um, what is the best diet for long distance uh, sport in general but bicycling in particular and um, and I switched over to the to a ketogenic diet so I don't eat uh, refined carbohydrates and I eat very high content of fat and with the good fats, so olive oil, pure butter, you drink coconut oil. oil. I drink oil like a car, yeah, just guzzle oil. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, like engine oil. No, no, it's 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 the good oil. It's like coconut condensed coconut oil. Oh, okay, that sounds okay. Um, yeah. And it, <laughs> um, but it it basically is it's the concept is that you consume this much food for this much energy it gives you as opposed to needing to eat when you have carbs you have to constantly keep refueling carbs yeah. otherwise you crash and once you once you bonk you're done your body yeah. can't recover very easily so it on a carb diet you've got to regularly keep tanking up and you have to eat like this much carb for this much energy mm. so it's the the reverse um, which is difficult when you don't have much space on your bike to carry Loads exactly. And, so yeah. I can just take a, my little bottle of oil and I'm okay. Got you. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've never tried that myself. Maybe I yeah. should ha- yeah. have a go. But after a certain point, when you're burning like 12,000 calories a day, doesn't matter what you put in, it all just goes. It's like okay. a furnace. It just burns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Can we go back to the start of this ride and the and what is sure. detailed in, in this book? Yes. So. You you weren't a bike rider. You decided yeah. that you were going to do this thing because yeah. 
why? I mean, why, why right around the world? Yeah, um, I couldn't tell you why I decided to cycle because it was never anything that would have entered my brain up until that point. I never thought about getting on a bike. I never would have thought of taking it up as a sport either. Um, <laughs> this is all good stuff in preparation for this. <laughs> but uh, so I had just lost someone really, really dear to me and went into a really dark, really dark place and couldn't pull myself out of this depression I had fallen into. And, um, and I just wanted to escape. And I decided I'm just going to leave on the, the most random adventure. And during his funeral, um, a friend said, oh, you know, I would like to go. I suppose death kind of brings what's important to you back into focus and, you know, what is what is real and what isn't. Or, you know, the fluff of life becomes less relevant. Mm. And um, and she was saying, well, you know, what are the things you would want to do before, if, if you were to die tomorrow, can you say that you've done everything you want to do? And she was said, well, I would like to go and cycle across Canada. And she was like, would you like to come? And I, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll think about it, like cycle Canada. Well, who does that? I was like, okay. Um, but then I started to research, well, if I was going to go cycle somewhere, where would I want to cycle? Um, and I started to research, like, potential cycle journeys, and then came up came across Scotland's Mark Beaumont um, and other men who had cycled around the world. And I was like, ooh, cycle around the world. And I'm a bit of an extremist, so if I start... Really? <laughs> if you go, go all the way, okay? <laughs> Don't do it halfway. So, uh, so I was like, well, you know, obviously, if you're going to do a long-distance cycle, it should be the world. Um, <laughs> and then realized very quickly that there had never been a woman who had done it. And I was like... But there had been women who had gone on bicycle adventures and on, you know, extensive, like Debla Murphy, like on, Debla, yeah. big, on continental journeys and all the rest. But there seemed to not have ever been a complete um, recorded circumnavigation um, non-stop. And so I was like, well, why is that? And I guess that sort of got me on that track. And then from then on, it was just, I just couldn't get it out of my head. I was like, I have to do it, have to do it. Hmm. And so then I, I got myself a, a cheap little, I think, 300 euro um, bike. It might have even been from. Um, oh, what is the what is the decathlon? Yes, was it? I think it was. <laughs> and and um, and started training on that, and just started riding every day, mm-hmm. adding mileage every day, a little more, a little more, until I could easily do two hundred kilometers a day. And then, once I got to that point, I was like, time to go. <laughs> yeah, and that was it. I've got really. my oil. You got my no. Well, at that point, I didn't I have oil. That, okay. Then, then it was really was just I was stopping every thirty kilometers and having to eat like big panini and blah, blah, blah. yeah. Um, and but yeah, the oil came later. That was, that was later. Upgrade developed into that. So you, so you planned a route. So I planned the basic route, and then I had to change plans because um, I had been trying to find a sponsor to help with you know some of the costs. Or I did get a bike sponsored. Um, but that was very last minute, and it was really the wrong bike. I had no idea. What was the bike? It, well, it was a, a locally made brand, but it was a very lightweight carbon frame. The bike was too small for me. The wheels were really small, and, and I looked a bit like big and hunched over on it, and, uh, and every single part was wrong and broke over the course of, <laughs> of the world cycle, and I think by the end, there wasn't a single part left from the original is just the frame that how, was the is your, how are your bike mechanics skills still not very good but they improve year by year <laughs> i really did wing it and i learned a lot just going and yeah. doing it so now if i did it again i would be completely change everything that i am but you know sometimes what you don't know won't hurt you <laughs> until it does <laughs> until it does <laughs> okay so so you've had eight months training you've got a bike got a bike you've got a bike good yeah i had three thousand euros perfect and and so i basically i had delayed because there was a, a a few promises of potential sponsors and they just never came through and never realized and then i thought well if i don't leave now i'm never gonna leave and so i thought if i leave perhaps they'll realize that you know i'm very serious about this and they'll kind of pick me up along the way okay um but you know thinking in hindsight I, somebody comes up to you off the street who's never cycled before and go i'm gonna cycle the world and and would you sponsor me you'd kind of be like you know it would be something that would you why would you invest in a lost cause so i you know obviously it was very difficult to get a sponsor Hmm. um and so then i ended up needing to change direction so i was going to go 
uh, east to west, which was the uh, sorry no west to east, which is the usual direction, which is uh, where the winds generally blow better that way. And um, then I delayed so long that it would I would have hit monsoon in Asia, so it was kind of a choice between monsoon or headwinds. And you chose headwinds. Yeah, I went. I went into the wind. <laughs> was that was that the right choice? Um, you know what? There is no wrong or right choice. There just is what you decide to do, and yeah. and that's right. Yeah. So I guess there's no point in changing your mind halfway yeah. round. No. <laughs> Never look back. <laughs> Great. Well, we'd quite like to hear a little reading from your book if you were up for that. Um, sure. Uh, this road I ride, published by. Um, it's published by Pyactus, I believe. Great. Yes. Take it away. <laughs> Forgot. <laughs> I hope they're not watching this. <laughs> um, do, do you do you want a, a long or a short? Give us the prologue to start with. Give you yeah. the prologue. Okay, here we are. <laughs> All right. Uh, This is the 22nd of December, 2012, which is the day that I returned to Naples. So I started in Naples and I finished in Naples. Uh, A noisy crowd of cyclists and motorcyclists have gathered outside the bar in the small town of Cardito on the periphery of Naples. Everybody wants to take pictures, but what I really want is a good espresso. There are groups of cyclists waiting to meet you along the way, Antonio says into my ear, checking his watch as I knock back a shot of rich, fragrant fragrant coffee at the bar. It is a typical Neapolitan bar selling warm cornetti, lottery tickets and cigarettes, with harsh fluorescent lighting and a small flat screen TV airing a football match. I could not be happier. How I have missed a decent Neapolitan espresso over the last five months. People will try and stop you to take pictures, but you've just got to go. There's no time. Remember, it's important you don't stop. Midday, you must be in Piazza Plebiscito. As my logistics manager, Antonio has absorbed most of the stress of my 18,000-mile-around-the-world cycle. He has not had a good night's sleep since the start of the endeavor and looks to have matched my own weight loss kilo for kilo. His curly black hair is unbrushed, and his tired eyes, often squinting as though deep in thought, are hidden behind dark ray-bands. He had little idea what he was signing up for when he agreed to manage the logistics for my journey just over a year ago. Then again, neither did I. The finish line cannot come soon enough for both of us. Okay, I'm ready. Where's Pegasus? I haven't seen my bike since Antonio took it off to the garage for safekeeping yesterday. His younger brother, Ricardo, wheels it over, filthy from yesterday's rain, dry mud crusted along the white carbon frame. The leather seat is torn in places. There are dents and scratches on the paint, but considering the mileage it has done, Pegasus is in fairly good condition. For all the breakdowns and problems, it has got me around the world. I stroke the handlebars lovingly. This bicycle has been my companion on the road for 152 days. I've talked to it a lot. One last ride, Pegasus, I mumble now. The waiting cyclists mount their bikes. The motorcyclists rev their engines to I Will Survive, blasting from a speaker strapped to one of the pillions. Antonio jumps into his blue Renault Clio just ahead of us. People are whistling and clapping from the street, the apartment windows and the balconies, shouting, Bye, Julie! Eager to escape from all the noise and attention, I clip onto the pedals and push off. Our procession grows along the last 60 kilometers into Naples. Cyclists from Schiano, the company that donated my bike, join us. We head towards the bike shop, Cicli Caputo, where I first learned how to change a tube and disassemble Pegasus. The shop cyclists, whom I had joined on training rides just eight months ago, are waiting for us there. We are now over 50 strong, teenage boys and older seasoned cyclists, amateurs and professionals, all accompanying me to the finish line. The police are on the streets to hold back the traffic as we pass. The motorcade blowing musical horns blocks cars at the junction so we never have to stop. The atmosphere is jovial. The sun breaks through the clouds as we crest Pozzoli, where ruins of the former Roman port city mingle with modern apartment complexes. The ocean below is silver-gray, the city of Naples a colorful tangle of buildings under the shadow of Vesuvius. I laugh with euphoria and shout to the guys peddling next to me, What a beautiful day to ride! They nod and give me the thumbs up. 
More cyclists are waiting for us further along the road. Casual biking commuters and several women from the green cycle community. The pace slows to accommodate everyone as our, rank, our ranks continue to swell. The last kilometers leading to Piazza Plebiscito follow the new bicycle path along the waterfront and into the city center. The entourage disperses into the waiting crowd of friends and online followers as I pedaled across the cobbled square and over the finish line. A Neapolitan flag is thrown around my shoulders. People are clapping and shouting, Brava! A makeshift shape, uh, stage has been set up and someone is standing on it shouting into a microphone, Juliana is back! Antonio is waiting for me as I climb off my bike and I give him a giant hug. Brava, baby, he says, pinching my cheek affectionately as he often does. We did it. It is his victory as much as mine. I may have done the peddling, but he has done everything to ensure I could. I'm led onto the stage with Pegasus and a microphone is thrust in front of my face. They obviously want me to say something, but my mind is blank. It all feels so surreal. I have made it around the world and I can't believe that it is really over. I can feel the bruised, shredded skin on my thigh from yesterday's fall. My toes are black and blistered with frostbite. My face is raw from sun and windburn. My body is near collapse. But in this moment, standing at the finish line with the crowd clapping and cheering, the difficulties, the sickness, the exhaustion, the cold, the hunger, the pain, and the tears all seem like a dream that never really happened. Yet it did happen, against everyone's expectations, without a sponsor or any funding, without a technical and medical support team, with only eight months of training on a bicycle. Nobody believed I would make it, certainly not all the way around the world, averaging 200 kilometers a day. I was not an athlete nor a cyclist. There was nothing to qualify me for such a huge undertaking. Nothing but willpower and the determination to finish no matter what. I had set out to prove that anything is possible, that we can do things that are far bigger than ourselves. Wow. <laughs> Did you believe that you would make it? I didn't, actually. In fact, I had left not really caring if I did make it. Because um, it, the, the point for me wasn't uh, to make the record. That was just a nice addition. Um, but I actually kind of... I wouldn't say it was a suicide mission, but I was so deeply depressed that um, I would be perfectly happy if something did happen to me and I just didn't come back. So I didn't actually think about making it to the end. And I think it was only about the halfway point that I was like hold up, I'm already halfway, and so, ooh, all roads lead to home, and then that, from that point on, I started to think, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, and and then it was like, nothing could stop me, I was going to make that finish line. So, wow, yeah. so it happened halfway around, so you left, you left Italy in a state of depression, and almost yeah. suicidal, Yeah. would you recommend that as a way to start, <laughs> around the world? <laughs> so I, I think because I was not in a, a sane state of mind, I won't say the same, but I was not in a straight, I wasn't thinking straight, I think that probably assisted me in doing something so outrageous as, as, as you know, just going around the world without really knowing what I was doing and not really caring or thinking about the consequences because everyone would say, well, what are you going to do if this happens? If this happens, and I was like, I don't care. I'll face it when it happens. Huh. Um, so maybe it was that feeling that I had nothing to lose that enabled me to just kind of do it and I think there was less thinking about consequences of the actions and um, and so yeah, I certainly think that helped a lot. And that, that mentality, that not, that taking these leaps of faith because you don't there's a recklessness there, you don't really care, that, yeah. do you think that, where do you think that comes from? <laughs> the, taking what, the recklessness? The recklessness, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a character flaw or... <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the opposite. <laughs> or, well, you know, they say your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness, so you do it depends. Say that. You just have to know when to use it. <laughs> now, is it not the case, though, that you believed growing up um, in, throughout your childhood that the world was going to end when you were 15? Have I read 12. That? When yeah. you were 12? Yeah, yeah. They were apocalyptic cult. Oh. So they thought that, you know, Jesus would come back with trumpets and rapture us all up, like, just like a big mass hoovering, and just take up all the humans that were good, Okay, which obviously was us. And um, <laughs> and then the, the world would be destroyed, and then we would come back and, and rule the, the leftovers. Um, yeah. Right. 
Yeah. What was that? What there was are still people who believe that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that still exists, the children of God. They do not, no. Uh, after the, my first book, it, it was forced to disband. It just had so much uh, exposure and negative publicity that they were just bleeding um, converts and money and all the rest, and they just couldn't survive anymore. So yeah. they're obliterated. So that, that book, Not Without My Sister, um, that was, it served its purpose, it's of it, which was to put out the truth of, of a generation of children who were born and raised in this environment. And, yeah. um, and I set out what I had planned to do, which was just to try and make it better for my brothers and sisters who were still in, so they could have a normal upbringing and go to school and have an education and get medical care and all the rest. Um, and it ended up you know, serving a much greater purpose, and the whole group disbanded, and so all the children were able to just go out and leave normal lives. So for mm. me, that was a very big jo- victory. Job done. Yeah. Yeah, job done, yeah. And you're, you're still a real advocate for vulnerable young people, aren't you? That's, yes. That's something that you... Very much for children's rights, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what's that sort of work that you, that you do now? Uh, I work with an organization which is set up by um, ex-kids who grew up in these extremist groups, and uh, it's called Safe Passage Foundation. So all my writing generally is to support or... To, to raise money and awareness for them. Um, we have a scholarship fund for them to get education when they leave, and uh, we have resources to help them get set up in the, in the real world when they you know, become functioning citizens. And, um, and then we have an emergency fund for if they're in a bad situation to help them get out. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that came out as a as a driver. Presumably, that's another. Yes. Yeah, so the world cycle was also um, raising um, money for the for the foundation as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And was that? Do you think that was something that people were getting on board with while they were gifting you money in New Zealand when you ran out of money? Was yeah. That so I basically said, any donations sent to my ride, I'm taking a fifty percent will go to Safe Passage, and the other will go to the, to the ride. Okay. To to be able to continue. So yeah. A lot of yeah, raised a pretty good amount of money for that. Yeah, fifty percent keep you in pizza and fifty percent. Pretty to, much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, so much must have happened to you on that ride. Yeah. And people here, if they haven't read your book, are just going to have to read your book in order yeah. to get their head around it fully. But um, can you detail for us, like, maybe if there was a, a moment that stood out for you where you were maybe at real risk of your life or if so, or yeah. the opposite? Yeah. There were a few moments that I felt in unsafe... Uh, uh, conditions, but I think one one of them, which became quite a highlight to me for the people I met because of it, uh, I was in New Zealand and I had actually just discovered that I had no more money to continue the ride, so I was literally going to try and get to the next big city and possibly get a flight home because I had no more money. And and while this event happened, people started sending donations in, and within like two days, there was another thousand in my account, so I was able to keep no, going to not, Australia. <laughs> But so what happened was I, I basically think my GPS died and I had no navigation and I got myself lost and the locals, either I didn't understand them or they didn't understand me, but they sent me in like all the wrong directions. Oh, no. I got myself completely lost in the middle of, no, I didn't know where I was, uh, got into this little town called Mangakino, which was sort of a, a derelict half sort of mining town with a lot of like prefab kind of structures and interesting people um, and booked into a hostel that had just been getting renovated and they didn't have Wi-Fi or anything so I couldn't get my routing or my map um, and I ended up wandering down to the banks of this river um, and there was this guy in a camper van and he had a sort of a makeshift structure up and he would make he said he would. He had a bar in the summer, and he would make kind of fast food, kind of pizzas and beer for people doing water sports on the lake or mm. on the river. Um, and he was trying out new pizza recipes, which basically meant a frozen, a frozen patty, and then he was dumping them um, frozen Asian vegetables on top and baking this. And it was just a comestible travesty. It was so bad. <laughs> Don't try it at home. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, from him, there was a, Brit- a British guy who was helping him eat this, I won't even call food. The travesty. And, yeah. And, um, and he had his laptop, so he let me use it so I could plot the route. And basically, my only option was I was going to go over this mountain kind of plateau called Desert Road. Uh, which the military used for training because it was such an abandoned 
um, Did you notice at the time, or is this afterwards you realised that that's what it was? No, I was told, okay. but I didn't have a choice. Like, I basically, okay. I had to cross this because that's where I was. Right. Um, unless I went backwards on myself, which yeah. I wasn't going to do. So, um, so I ended up going off on desert road, and he, he was like, "Bring enough, you know, water and all the rest because there's nothing out there." Mm. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," and I thought, you know. 80 kilometers 100 kilometers there's bound to be a petrol station or something but no Mm -hmm. um i was climbing for 150 kilometers all day and there was really nothing out there and i got to the top of the plateau and as night was falling and i was so exhausted and shaking with uh, with fatigue and hunger um, before my ketogenic diet, that obviously. wouldn't have happened. No. Yeah, with, yeah, if I had my oil with me, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but night fell, and with night came this uh, incredible wind, and there was warning signs on the road for trucks, and they were the only things passing were these massive uh, train trucks, and um, it was so strong. I think it was something like it was over a hundred kilometers an hour that I couldn't actually pedal anymore and I had to walk the bike and the wind was literally picking up the bike with all and I was like hanging on like that wow. and trying to walk along and I wasn't dressed for the cold and there was snow up there and um, and the temperatures just plummeted as night fell and I had been like climbing all day and I was sweating and so I was starting to get really cold and I, I, as long as I could pedal I could stay warm mm-hmm. but then walking I started to f- started to freeze basically I was yeah. getting hypothermia and I was like, like <laughs> and I thought oh my god I'm gonna you didn't have a die up or here. anything with you I no. didn't I didn't have I know I could, there was nowhere like yeah. I could have stopped I couldn't have even set up a tent in that wind you, like, it would have been impossible uh, and uh, and I didn't know where the next town was yeah. and I just didn't know if I would get there and I was pretty much panicking at that point and then I saw uh, a camper van had just pulled off the side of the road and, and there was an old lady inside washing dishes um, and I saw her in the window and she just looked like an, a saving angel and I was like pounded on the window I was like ah! <laughs> and then she was like signaled to me to go around the front and I came around the front and the the, the the wind almost tore the door off the thing and she went like flying out and she was like <laughs> um, and she's like, what are you doing out here? All I was like, I think I'm getting hypothermic. <laughs> and then her husband came out and they were like, we'll get you inside. We'll get you inside. So we all piled inside and like slammed the door shut. And I was like blue in the face. And so he, she was like, oh, we'll get you a hot cup of tea. And then he was like, no, some bourbon will be better. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> what did so you I choose? sat across from him and we were drinking like shots of bourbon. And I very quickly warmed up. And, um <laughs> And then they fed me sausages and tea and all the rest. Um, and I told them what I was doing. And they were like, you're mad. I'm like, it's not the first time I've heard that. But um, I said, so how far is the next town? I've got to get to it tonight. And they were like, no, it's impossible. You get there tonight. It's like, you know, 40 miles on. And, I, and so I was in this position. I didn't know what to do. Um, and they were going to drive 200 kilometers in the opposite direction to get to some friends they were going to stay the night with um and so i said well would you be able to drop me in the town and i'll just have to cycle back here in the morning and start again from this point and he was like no no forget it we'll just stop here for the night and you can sleep up on the top bunk there and so they put me up that night and the wind was rocking that thing all night and they didn't sleep the poor things like oh but I did I slept like a dead <laughs> and they got me up at 6am and she cooked me like some toast and coffee and they got me going again I was mm-hmm. such a nice couple and then they still follow me today on, on Facebook oh yeah. really really nice You're couple they said I'm their best dinner story <laughs> <laughs> really did, nice did they know that, that you are theirs as well <laughs> yes yeah, so story it's well. very mutual it's yes. mutual it's mutual <laughs> adoration for sure wow incredible story and that really does exist as I think that kindness of, of people willing to help you. Yeah, uh, just um, s- such good people. So many times uh, people just kind of went out of their way to um, when they didn't have to, uh, yeah. to help me out. And, and um, I seriously just got around the world on good people. Were there, though, any experiences where you did run into difficulties, like where where you didn't feel safe, that you that you didn't trust the people that were around you? Were, were there instances... Like o- that. Only in India. In India. Yes, I'm afraid. I don't have a lot of good to say about India, but um, there, it was very uh, intimidating. Um, every time I would stop, I would get mobbed by a big swarm of men, and they would kind of close in on me and start like 
jostling to me the bike and mm. and and they would get a bit aggressive at one point the police had to come in and break up the mob with like batons and it was really a bit so I just tried to never stop in India and then they would follow me on motorbikes and be like calling very crude things at me and I started to get aggressive back so I, I, I went between two tactics one was to be aggressive and I realized they're a bit cowardly uh-huh. so if they thought you could beat them up then they would drive away so I tried to look as like tough and angry as possible um, and then they would kind of like be scared and, and they'd go away or or I would start to act like a crazy person because I have a great respect for crazy people so I would start to like do like crazy monkey stuff and shit like that and then they would kind of like freeze and I would just like roll my bike away through the crowd <laughs> so, so uh, those two tactics that you would recommend uh, crazy monkey I recommend crazy it works monkey. every time yeah. Yeah. yeah in just general life not yeah I mean everyone's a little bit scared of, of someone who they think is not all there because yeah. they're unpredictable and we're scared of the unpredictable so yeah just act really unpredictable and people will back away but you didn't actually ever get get you weren't you weren't physically assaulted or threat or no just, there just was one instance in thailand where i was um i got a little beach hut one night and it was really in the middle of nowhere uh, and generally, as a as a rule, I would try and stay in fairly populated areas and never allow myself to be put in a situation where I could potentially be mm. uh, at risk. Um, just I was more careful and cautious. Uh, but this time, I really wanted to be on a beach in Thailand, and and I grew up in Thailand, so as I have all kinds of childhood memories that were fairly happy of going to the beach. So I really wanted to get a little cabina, like a two dollar cabina on the beach, and and stay there the night. And a family pulled up and got the the one next to me and I went to bed quite early and I woke up in the middle of the night and there was three men on the, the there was so there had been some beach dogs around and they chilled out with me all night and I gave them some of my food so they were all sleeping on my on my um, balcony of my cabina mm-hmm. around my door so they started to bark furiously during the night and so I got up and was like what's happening and at the cabina next door there was um this family seemed to be um, being, at, uh, I don't know if they were uh, being robbed or what was happening, but there was three men quite aggressively pulling the father out and there was shouting and, 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 oh. and the women were crying and so there was something happening and, and I got really scared because I had experiences when I was living in Africa being held at gunpoint during the night and being robbed and all the rest. So it was just like this moment where my body went to shock and like kind of froze and I I suppose it was a form of PTSD and I just started couldn't control myself like huh. um, and then I sort of forced myself to just calm down and just like mind over matter and, and I got I, I had a very interesting realization that night because I was like what's the worst thing that could happen to me uh-huh. um, and the worst thing that could happen to me was was that I would die and I thought well that's not the worst thing that could happen to me I, I don't mind like because if I die if, if there's life after death then you know my next adventure awaits me and if not well then I'll never know anyway so you know I won't know I'm dead if, I, if there's nothing there so, you know, so you what am I fussing about so, <laughs> so I went back peace. to sleep <laughs> really well that was still going on yeah and I woke up the next morning and and uh, and the dogs were all sleeping in front of my door like they'd been guarding me and yeah nothing happened so so it's not until you're faced with that possibility of death that you yeah. find that that and you calm find that like, complete and calm and once I calmed down then I was like you know, once I rationalized it, I was like, well, then, you know, I can be physically assaulted. That's not the worst thing that can happen to me. What does everyone think is the worst thing? Death. There's nothing they can steal from me. I don't have anything apart from my bike. And so that's not the end of the world. So, you know, it was broken anyway. Yeah. The, the most thing. you can lose is your life. And, and then if you're OK, you know, if you reach the point where you're not afraid of even that and then you have no fear. Then, then nothing terrifies you anymore, and then you're able to, you know, just go on. What a point to reach! <laughs> it's a tough point to reach. We don't actually ever put ourselves in those positions no. very often. Yeah. Um, but it's a great emancipation when, when you have nothing left that you feel scared to lose. Um, then you lose the fear of loss itself, yeah. and that I think is the biggest human emancipation that you can experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Dervla Murphy said something interesting about that as well. Oh. She's people say to her and to you, well, "You must be very courageous," and yet if you don't feel fear, then you're not overcoming anything. And courage is overcoming something. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. And I've got about a million questions, and I could hog you the whole time, or we could open it up to the floor sure. and and get some other folk asking some questions. You up for that? Yeah. yeah. 
We have a mic. We have a mic. Fantastic. Um, has anyone got? Whoa. <laughs> okay. Um, the gentleman in the blue shirt, please. Um, you talked in the book about uh, an epiphany, but was when you re-experienced the feelings you had in a dream about your father. Yes. Do you think has that affected how your life has gone on since since then? Was that was that a, was that a very significant moment in how your life then continued after that? Yeah, I think um, I've tried to. I think well, there were many moments of epiphany along that journey that kind of brought me to a new understanding of of the way I saw the world and my place in the world and, and life in general. And I think um, that was one of them. Um, but it kind of just brought back to me that that no matter what happens in life, you can be in a place of complete calm, inner calm, so that anything that happens around you doesn't phase you, and you actually just can experience life on a much more um, present. Um, just being present in that moment and experiencing it and whether I, I mean I don't think that anything is so th- such thing as bad or good experiences because it's all an experience on on the journey that we're in that that, that existence is um, and so yeah that was quite um, a highlight and, and I'd certainly going forward um, I think I have found a, f- a sense of peace and I maybe on that journey I was looking for a way to deal and or to find a way to to f- to get a, a bit of peace because I was in such an emotional turmoil and I think that I did manage by that point to start to find it and, and going forward have certainly found it yeah thank you yeah there's a gentleman just by behind me hi there I just wonder um, how easy you find it now just to get up in the morning have a coffee perhaps go out for a walk do you not just find that completely mundane <laughs> I had uh, problems with that in the beginning um but you know, you know what? Um, more and more, as as time has gone, and the more adventures I go on, I'm, I've started to find great pleasure in the really simple things. Just enjoying that cup of coffee in the morning, and like I said, being present in that experience. So, like a cup of coffee when you've had the worst coffee for the last five months becomes a great joy. Um, and so sometimes just an, a, a comfortable bed. So I've just been come back from following the transcontinental race as an organizer this year not racing it and I actually had to follow the race in a car so I've been sleeping about as much as the racers about four hours a night and in on the ground in sleeping mats um on couches on just random places and not had a good night's sleep for a month and so I finally got home and my bed was just the most I just wanted I just want I don't want to have sex with it no I, it was close <laughs> and then you know and then my 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 darling man was in the bed too and that just made everything better so like and that the simple things like that I, I find great great happiness and satisfaction with yeah so sometimes I don't need you don't need to you do need to have an extreme opposite to appreciate the things that are taken for granted on a day-to-day level so yeah that does help actually but it is hard that transition when you first come back when you first come back because you've had such peak experiences yeah. that everything just becomes um, I suppose the world comes crashing back in yeah. on you yeah and all of the like day to day trivialities just seem so petty and they just kind of you just don't know how to deal anymore because yeah. life becomes so simplified on the road it's just eat sleep and ride yeah. and that's it and, and you know you kind of you put your focus into that and so you yeah, you do have to start to take care of. Then you have to worry about, you know, paying your bills and this and that. And, and, and yeah, life does come back. So it's hard to keep that mm-hmm. um, that kind of simplicity. Um, but I, I do try. I strive. It's a constant struggle. <laughs> um, the gentleman at the front in the... Sorry. Oh. Uh, you famously beat Mark Bowen's record by 44 days. Uh, I'm just wondering what your take on his current record attempt is. <laughs> So you oh. famously beat Mark Bowman's record by how many days? Oh, was it was it almost two months more or less? I was he did what? Quite, quite a long Hundred ninety-five days. Yeah. Oh, about fifty days more. I don't know. I think it was a bigger deal for 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 you guys here than it was for me. Um, yeah, uh, I think that I think they're two very different things. So. Writing supported and unsupported already to me is a different thing because you don't have the same experiences and you don't have the possibility of having the kind of uh, experiences you do when you're on an adventure on your own without all of that support and money and backing. Um, so you might not encounter the same people or, or the same places that you would otherwise. Uh, so it's really about whether you're going on an adventure for yourself 
or whether you're doing it as a job uh, to make money. And I think that's the main difference between the two. Um, I think anyone with that much backing could probably do the same thing without much training, that much resources, that much. But not everyone's that lucky. Um, but what I want to show is that you can also go on a similar adventure, but you don't need all of that behind you. You can just go out and do it anyway. And I think that's maybe, maybe the difference. With eight months of training and a decathlon bike. Yeah, if I could do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah. One more just, just behind. Juliana, uh, I just wanted to know what's the next big adventure. Not <laughs> dot following in a car. That's not fun. No, it's not fun. <laughs> um, well, I'm planning a expedition through Patagonia by bike at the end of the year. And I'm really excited. So I've got a bucket list of all the rides I still want to do. And South America has been really high, particularly Patagonia going from like the edge of Peru down through Chile and then I want to hit Bolivia salt flats and then I want to go down through Argentina so I'm going to probably do that um, for the next for three to four weeks at the end of the year over the new year and that's like hit that from my bucket list yeah (laughs) cool some more questions yeah we'll move on to the next thank you is there ever the temptation to stay longer? To stay longer, like in, in one place yeah. as and I go through? Oh, all yeah. The things you're going to do, you know? And yeah. In only those few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. Like, uh, particularly when you're having a really good time somewhere, you just think, oh my God, I could stay here a week. And, be, uh, and then you always think, I've got to come back, I've got to come back. And sometimes you get to, and, and many times you don't. But I have been lucky that in lots of places that I was at the World Cycle, I've revisited either through cycling adventures alone or um, through many of the races I've done so now I've like crossed all the continents again two or three times so I've done like loads of the I've hit the same places and actually been able to see some of the same people too so I have managed to come back to a lot of the places and I have many more that I still have to go back to they've, they've been added to the list it's ever growing list it's never going to end <laughs> But yeah, um, it, it would be interesting to do it as a slow ride and take your time and have fun. And I think that that's definitely a nice way to do it. And I, I am almost jealous of the cyclists who have done it that way. Hmm. Yeah. It takes a very different mindset, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, to, yeah. I think you, think you think more long term yeah. and, and just sort of settle into it. And I think what to relax like that and have a journey by bike without any time constraints is wonderful mm. and I appreciate it more and more like, the more I've done races the more I want to not you know I want to be on a bike for pleasure not not with a time yeah. time limit yeah but you get something from the racing you get something well. from both because being in a race pushes you or push, puts you in a position where you're forced to push yourself harder than you otherwise would and you learn a lot about yourself when you're put into that kind of extreme um, uh, situation where your mind and your body are all being pushed to their absolute limit and when you think you can't go further and then you go further and it's, it's an amazingly it's really hard to explain that feeling but it becomes very addicting because you reach this, this peak that you didn't know you could achieve that and you achieve it and it's, 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 um, it's incredible and you take that into everyday life because then you feel so strong you feel like if I did that I can do anything what else can I do so it's, it's two extremely different things but I think both are, are very important and have their place for different reasons yeah. Thank you. Uh, there's a gentleman at the front here Hello Juliana, thank you very much for your talk uh, I want to know what that bike is doing there and whether you arrived here and have you got a decent bike now <laughs> this this gorgeous beast is not mine <laughs> it's Lee's yeah. but we, we put it there for decorative reasons but you're uh, decorative enough <laughs> oh I like you <laughs> smooth um, but so you can sort of get an idea of the kind of kit we carry on these um, races and long rides. So you would think we don't do all the big saddlebags and packs. They really are just very aerodynamic and minimalist. And you only carry like your absolute essentials. So you'll have just like a rain jacket and um, maybe a change of cycle shorts and some, some tools to fix your bike and maybe a couple spare parts and that's it. And so you more or less ride that. It's also one that could fit under the seat. Like um, looks a bit like an abdomen of an insect. And it just attaches directly under, so you don't need to have the rack or anything like that. So everything's very lightweight and compact. 
um, and that's more or less how they. And, and what weight? Uh, what, what what bicycle have you got now? Or is it a good quality? I've um, I've got a few, um, and then uh, I find that different rides and races are are um, need different things. So depending on what the ride or the race will be, I I will have a bike accordingly. I don't have that many. I've got three bikes, but. Um, like for example I want to get a mountain bike now because I would like to do a, a mountain bike expedition or, or race uh, so then I have to you know source money for that but the ones nowadays that we race with are quite um, they're a bit hybrid so they look a bit like a road bike but they've got the mountain bike disc brakes um, and I use mountain bike pedals as well because then I can walk around with the shoes everywhere so I can I don't need to bring a spare change of shoes or anything like that and um, and then it will depend. The handlebars can vary, but they tend to be a little bit less bulky than mountain bikes and a little bit faster on racing. And then I've got a road bike. So. But the really strong one that I love, that I won the Trans Am with, was a, a Canyon. And uh, it wasn't the lightest of bikes, but it was really tough. And it had a, it had a couple crashes that it survived, so it was, it was a really good bike for that reason. <laughs> but, yeah. They, they keep coming out with new and interesting... Uh, bikes for for these kind of randonnées and distant cycling, and they're starting to change a lot. And, and bikes are getting more and more high tech, and and like nothing that I recognized f- six years ago. Uh, I just wondered, what, what elevation did you did you um, make uh, in height? How, what, what elevation did you did you get to on on her world tour? How tall am I? No, no, no what what height did you get to, did you ride to? Did you, did you climb? Oh, the highest elevation yeah. I hit. Um, I would have to say, let me think. I went over the Rockies. I went over the Alps. I don't. I don't think I went higher than two thousand five hundred meters. I think. I think v- that would be v- very wise. It gets a bit hearty <laughs> after that. There's another question just at the at the back there. Yeah. <laughs> Button really racing back. So, um, Juliana, you were saying that before you uh, set out to set a, the world record, no woman had done it before. Um, no woman has done it since, either. Mm. You're still mm. the record holder. I know mm. quite a few women have attempted it or wanted to do it and then not done it for some reason. So it's now, what, six years? So yeah. well done. But do you have any idea why nobody has attempted or broken the record since yours? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I know the woman who tried it, um, they were all going to do it supported, mostly. Um, and I think, I don't know if women are just don't have the same confidence, um, or they're not sure they can, or they don't feel experienced enough. I don't know what keeps women from from kind of taking off on these on these bigger adventures or maybe it's just because we women tend to maybe have you know families and you know take on the concerns of you know have children and all the rest and so there's maybe a very few who would be able to do it who'd be able to go off and do it and and most women who get into cycling uh, professional cycling probably go off and join teams or, or get into professional racing and so maybe they're not suited to the other so I don't know, and it could also be financial reasons. The women um, are have more difficulty getting backing or getting support in any way. Like I had the hardest, I still have a hard time. I still don't have a sponsor, and it's been really hard to find um, sponsor for my racing. So I don't know. Oh, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, riding now, who would be able to set a new record? Oh yeah! Oh, there's loads. You could, for instance. <laughs> Lee could. Um, I could. That sounds like a race. Ooh. <laughs> a race around the world with women would be really interesting. It hey, wouldn't it? There are there's so like so now in the last um, so in the first transcontinental race, which was in 2013, I was the only woman of the racers. And now in the transcontinental race this year, there was 30. So it's growing massively for women in popularity. And I think that the more that they realize they can do it, because we just, the whole world of ultra racing is still very new, first of all, but it's particularly new to women. And it does take a lot of time um, to be able to do it, so to train and to, um, and to actually race. So, you know, not that many women have that amount of time to, to, to spend doing things like that. But 
it's growing anyway ridiculously fast and within that field of women coming in there's gonna there's gonna be in future loads and there already are loads who could take it on and for sure there will be in future ones who do take it on i'm absolutely certain can't wait an interesting time, I think, for women in yeah. sport. Yeah. I think we've got time for one more question. Yeah. Hi. Um, you talked a, a bit about the kind of the focus and the mindset you get into when you're riding, um, which was kind of like eat, sleep, ride. Yeah. Um, I think it's astounding that you've been able to create a book, and I'm curious to know about the, the process of logging memory when you're in that state, and, and then, I guess, how you went about writing the book afterwards. Yeah. Oh, well, I was lucky because... Um, the Guinness World Record rules said I had to carry a log book and put, and enter a log every single day of anything that happened to me and uh, and signatures of people I met along the way, the time, the date, and all that, where I stayed the night, where I stopped the night, and all. So I had I had a very um, uh, detailed record of the ride that in front of me, and I think I used that as a way I could write down thoughts as well that I had because you spend so much time in your head um, which is a great way to work out your your mental uh, process or fight your demons I suppose but so I, I when I went back to write the book I pretty much and it is written in a diary format because it is just taken directly from the log book so most of the um, not most of it but a lot of the, um, the thoughts or the kind of um, moments of epiphany that I had on the road were written from the diary and just taken directly from the diary and put into the book so it, it is very much when you read it a very uh it's it's short it's concise because it's i wanted the reader to have it exactly as i kind of felt it at the end of the day logging it down and my experience of that day so it's not like every single thing that happened and it's not uh it's not a travel log it really is just what i felt what i ate what i experienced and what what i saw who i met along the way and so it, it rose it goes very fast that way much as my my days flew by and so yeah it was I guess a way of of keeping track of of those kind of inner monologues as well which is really great I'm glad I, I'm glad I was forced to do it <laughs> yeah Juliana, we could ask you questions all afternoon, but we have to wrap it up okay. because you're only in Scotland for another 24 hours and yeah. I feel personally responsible for ensuring you drink whiskey and eat oysters. Yes. Yeah. So that's what our afternoon, we need to wrap up and get on yeah, and do yeah. that. But that's before what I came to, to Edinburgh for. This is this just an just aside. Yeah. Yeah. But before we do that, um, Juliana will be signing her book, This Road I Ride, for those of you that maybe have your own copy or if you want to buy a copy you can do that at the signing tent just out of these doors 50 50 yards down on the left hand side so Juliana will be in there we'll bring you an oyster and a whiskey for until yeah she'll she'll stay until she's signed everybody's books Um, thank you all so much for coming and thank you to the Edinburgh Book Festival for putting on this incredible series of events not just this one although this actually was an excellent one it's really nice isn't it yeah Yeah. Yeah. but for an enormous thank you to Juliana Boone. Oh, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you so much. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.